You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is an ongoing analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week we take a look at a, another side of the spy genre. It's 1965's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. James Bond. Hello, everybody. It's time once again for another brand new episode of the Bondzilla podcast. I am Nick. I'm Will. And uh, yeah, we're we're back for more uh, Bondzilla action as we we head towards we hurdle towards the end of 2020. As weird as that is to say, that you know, again, a year that so much and so little has happened at the same time. Um, I don't think you should say hurdle towards the end of 2020 because that does sound like a like a threat, like it's like or like a like a dark like a yeah. promise, like it's like it's like it's coming to an end. Finally. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just we're we're getting there. We're we're in October mm-hmm. already. You know, we're in we're in spooky season. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going boo and and spooky, scary skeletons and all that nonsense. It's, yeah. it's time, and yeah. soon it'll be. November and then December and then that's it. No more 2020. Yeah, it's funny because um, with uh, I, I started up some work again and it's just kind of funny because my work is kind of continuous work um, and I we, we usually take it, it was weird because like I'm usually off during the summer yeah. um, and so technically I was like I mean obviously we were all kind of yeah, off yeah, for yeah. the summer regar- regardless but um, is it regardless or irregardless? I've been having trouble with the distinction between those two. Um, I think it's. I think in the terms you're using, it's regardless. Okay. Well, like regardless of all that, either one, either yeah. or. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of funny. Like you know, I have to go back into my like work email, and then yeah. it's just remember like that time I said like where it's like fun to go back and um, like revisit the last six months. via like podcasts and like video Mm -hmm. like everything it is funny because like it's like you know actually this is this is very similar to something related to the show remember the scene in godzilla 2014 where you know they go back uh to japan uh to like the the site like jinjira where like you know the the nuclear meltdown happened or the supposed so and then uh you know um Cranston and Aaron Taylor Johnson they like you know they find their old house because they're looking for the floppy disks and it's like this whole like oh yeah this was this everything this is all the stuff that we left here during that day that it happened so that's kind of like the feeling I get when I like go back and I like go on my work email and I see like uh emails saying like oh like you know uh today's meeting it's like march 16th and today like the stunt meeting is canceled <laughs> and then you like look back at it you're like these old relics of like yeah. a more innocent time <laughs> like it's like yeah we're gonna be uh just rescheduling it like you know for like the next week or something so that that's kind of funny um but yeah no it it is just another testament to uh just how much of a whirlwind everything every everything has been yeah, it just continues to be. I think that's really the key part of it. Just mm-hmm. So much is just still 
shifting. I mean, speaking of that, um, there's actually a lot of different news, but there's actually yeah. quite a bit that we can say for the Godzilla stuff. I mean, real quick, we can mention uh, new series, Netflix series, anime yes. series coming out, which is a lot of fun. There's a lot of, uh, no pun intended, headway made on that giant Shin Godzilla statue. Uh, or mm-hmm. like, uh, or for the for the amusement park or whatever that, that that's coming to fruition. So all of that, uh, all of that is exciting stuff, uh, definitely yeah. that we will talk about. But uh, there was there is some Bond related stuff. One of which I don't think we talked about on the show, uh, and in the chronicle, we really should have gotten like a theme song about like what's happening with movies. Yeah. 2020. <laughs> we, well, I we think, should. I, mean, I don't. The, I don't think I mean, we. I, yeah, I don't think we need the big a big lead into this. Like you know, we just got the news that you know, No Time to Die was once again pushed back to 2021. Right. And with that, alongside Soul, the new Pixar movie coming to Disney Plus, it's just movies are done for the year. That's mm-hmm. just it. And yeah, I had to explain th- that. It's funny to finally explain that. I was I was talking with somebody. And it was weird because you basically had to say that, like, oh, there's no new movies this year, which is also kind of, like, funny because it's, like, well, like, another friend of ours, like, said, like, well, when you think about it, it's October. It's it's the end of the year. (laughs) I mean, mean, it's a lot, but it's, like, only, like, that's a different statement than, like, back in, like, March saying there's no movies at the end of the year. At this point, it's, like, yeah, everybody's kind of relented to that fact already. Well, I think it's one of those things where obviously, like, in the past, we've done, like, separate news episodes for for this news. But I think at this point, it's just this is what we've been saying would probably happen for many, many months now. Um, I do have to say, like, every episode was like, well, we'll see. I mean, it's not great, but we'll see what happens. And then every time we say that, another piece of the puzzle gets placed in. Yeah, and it just everything makes sense, especially because, you know, not just with the studios themselves, but the theaters have also been really struggling. We got, you know, the news that like the Regals are going to shut down again. You know, the Regal the- Regal mm-hmm. Cinema is not, not necessarily because of COVID. Well, not because of the <laughs> what do you stuff, mean? But, like, like, like definitely because of that. Well, but no, not necessarily because of the safety stuff. It's because people aren't coming out because they were like, sure, know, there was, like, sure. The, yeah. The, 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 it was like, oh, we're only going to be open weekends or only, you know, movies only after like, you know, three o'clock or whatever it was. And then they were just like, nope, we're no more. And I think it was also, I mean, just to go back on what something we had touched on earlier in one of our um, dives into the subject is kind of that Mulan subject of, you know, the premium and and people paying. And I think we kind of saw, I don't know if that Mulan thing really hit as much as Disney was hoping because one, they made Mulan available on other digital platforms, including uh, Amazon Prime and stuff like that. So it seemed like not many people went, I mean, I think... And the other thing is that, you know, with Soul coming to Disney Plus, that was another one that would have been like a probably a premium purchase, you know, because it's like a, a real to renew movie. And that one is just getting dropped on on Christmas. So mm-hmm. it seemed like that strategy wasn't as hot as they were hoping. And I think that as well, you know, it's just, you know, really, we just had that tenant truly just didn't seem to do well. Mm-hmm. And, and again, New Mutants got kind of thrown out to the wolves because it had to right and other than that like we really haven't had any sort of indication that anybody wants to to be the next one you know right i mean i I, I mean it just it makes sense that 
uh, even if it seemed like there was still sort of some push for it to be in November, that that it just made sense that No Time to Die and stuff like Soul were going to move other places. Well, again, I, I can't really remember exactly what we touched upon, but like the thing was like because of the tenant stuff, like everybody was just moving because it just didn't do well. Yeah, we, we talked about so that. So I, I have to – We talked about I Actually, that. it's funny because it's always funny going back and seeing like what – we said previously and like especially yeah. back like in like you know march april like that period but um but uh i i have i guess i kind of have to like half like say i was wrong some of it i was right but some of it i was wrong like because one of the things is i've always said like you can't just expect that you know everything would just bounce back movie wise but then there was that period where i was like kind of saying like well you know, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, people, when they go out and, the, you know, they're going to want to do stuff. Like, so yeah. the movie theater thing, and, and this is kind of like the saving grace for movies. I think, like, people are, and, and, like, going forward, like, it's just, like, people just need stuff to do. Like, mm-hmm. so that that was kind of my thing. It's like, well, people will go to the movie. It may not be in droves, but I guess it not being in droves. It was more so not in droves than I thought. Because, you know, without getting too deep into it, um, you know, I was going to say without getting political, but Nick has chosen probably our most political movie ever, (laughs) I think. I was like, I was like, oh, man, I was like, has Nick been paying attention to politics recently? And and he's like, this inspired him to do it, but we'll get into that. But, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, the conversation is all about you know everybody like you know applauding like anybody who says like oh don't go to the movies right now like so and the easy go-to is like not releasing these movies is that type of safety play but like the reality of it is like nobody went yeah (laughs) like that's the thing it's like and i get like it's kind of inconclusive because like you know places like new york and california are like you know, not as, you know, open to, to things like that. But at the end of the day, I, I, I think, you know, you don't even have to worry about, like, the the notion that everybody's like, okay, well, you know, you'll just open it up and then everybody goes. I mean, clearly that didn't happen, which I find interesting. Like, just nobody went to the movies. Right. And, no, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's interesting, and I don't know we're really going to know, you know, because there's so much with the movie thing especially because – I feel like the tough thing about opening movie theaters is there's a real dependence on, you know, what's there and, and, and that sort of thing where it's like, like I, I, I've, the other things that have been open, like let's take like the theme parks, for example, because the Orlando parks and international parks have kind of been open for a while. I think one of the things about that, that I've noticed, cause you know, I'm very big into looking into it is when those first opened, like when, when Disney world and universal Orlando first opened in like July in August, like, people weren't really going. Like mm. there wasn't really traveling. And now that they've had a, a while where, again, they haven't really had any outbreaks and, and kind of we, we've seen how that kind of works. Now we've gotten to kind of like, you know, October, this October period where you kind of see more people going and, and more stuff happening. And I think that's the kind of a thing with the theaters is that the, the thing is, I think people – there's a certain subject of people, not everybody, but a certain subject of people that want to say like, okay, well, I want to see, you know, if anything happens first, as I was kind of saying months ago, where like you kind of want to see like, 
you don't want to go right away because that's the time where the things are, you know, they're still kind of working out the policies and everything like that. But the problem with movies theaters and movies is you don't have that luxury of, you know, things are already there that people want to go. Like the theme parks, like people know they want to go on Space Mountain. They know right. they want to go on like the, the Harry Potter rides. Like they know that it's there and they just kind of want to see the policies. Whereas the movies, it's very dependent on, you know, seeing things, you know, things are shifting every day and like what's in a movie theater. So, you know, again, it's kind of the oxymoron of stuff like Tenet and New Mutants weren't going to bring people out, but it also just showed that there was an inherent, like, I need to go to the theater right away. Yeah, I mean, and, and that, like, that and, strategy. And again, like, you know, the, the other thing is, like, neither of those movies necessarily got that reception of, like, right. you have to go come and mm-hmm. see this. Like, right. like, I do wonder if Mulan or, like, something like No Time to Die would have done it. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I understand, like, that's not a risk at this point that anybody wants to take. Um, I mean, again, that's that's the kind of the what-if right. scenario where it's like you don't want to put Mulan out there in, you know, because it's like you put Mulan out there and it doesn't succeed mm-hmm. or you put Mulan out there and it, it ex- succeeds, but then, you know, maybe it's just Mulan and maybe it's not just movies in general. Like, you know, it's just, y- you know, the, I, the movie theaters have no easy answers right, to this. Right, like, yeah. Until they can get people back, like, generally safely like there's no easy answer for the movie theater as much as there are for because even like like even restaurants you could be like oh well we just let less people in and we like distance the tables a little bit because movies just don't have that easy answer i feel like or at least an easy answer Uh, in theory i mean i think they do i mean it's just a matter but again it's people didn't go yeah it has nothing to do with the theaters like people didn't go to the theater yeah I mean, like, I guess that's that's the end of the day. People just didn't go, and the theaters. Like, I, you could put pods reacting. in the in the theater. People did not go. That's the thing. Well, I, I think I, I got I have to say this because we do have to start moving on. But I, I do kind of want to just vent this because I was thinking about this recently, yeah. and I don't feel like Twitter threading it. But it sucks that movies aren't coming out. I'm sorry. Like it, it like. And I should I should preface this because I understand that the sentiment now is like, listen, like we live in a time where it's great that movies can come out streaming and everything. And there's plenty of movies that are coming out in that format that I have either already have seen or that I will see. But, you know, the the sentiment is like, and you know, it's not that bad because there's people who are kind of like, I don't know about begrudgingly, but they're kind of like, you know, talking themselves into like, yeah, well, you know, it's like, are we really going to say like the theater experience was great? Like, you know, they, you know, that kind of attitude that people have where it's like, you know, like, let's all face it. Like, you know, it wasn't like, like we're, we're looking at it with rose colored glasses or whatever. And, and to a certain extent, I get that, but like, it just kind of sucks. Like I, like my, like the excitement level for like getting ready for movies, like there, like there's movies coming out, and I'm just thinking like my excitement level for like a movie dropping on streaming is just not the same as if it were to come out in theaters. Like even if yeah. I didn't go see it in theaters, like there's this like this weird psychological thing where I'm like, oh yeah, like I I can't wait for you know Freaky, like which is a horror movie coming out. I can't wait for that to come out. Um. And but then it's like the feeling of it coming out is like so what what's it gonna be? It's like oh, I'm gonna be at home because I'm always at home, <laughs> and then it's just gonna be on the internet. And then what am I gonna do to watch it? I'll just I, I I'll put it on. I I maybe it's like a weird me problem, but like no, it just there's... it just to think about like oh movies coming out and then like how am I gonna get ready for it? I'm like oh I'll just wait on my couch 
for I mean, it. Thing is, is, like, is, I'm is sorry. It, like, it, it sucks. It I don't really, like it. I mean, the difference is, is that you lack that communal experience. You know, I think that's even if you're in it by your theater by yourself, like you're not seeing with friends, there's something about like going to a comedy and everybody laughing at the joke or going into the action movie and everybody being invested in this action scene. Like, and, and even coming out of the movie and just hearing people chatter about what they just saw, like Mm -hmm. there is that element that you miss, especially because even with this, it's not like we can just go and be like, Oh, let's have a watch party. You know, let's Mm -hmm. have a watch party for soul because it's like, you know, people are still kind of wanting to distance and, you know, some people are kind of still back to work in environments where, you know, they are kind of at risk and stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of different factors still happening, especially where, where we are in LA, um, that you just lack that communal experience. Like the closest we have is to do like zoom screenings or like, you know, yeah. texting each other. While well, see, but that's movies. my problem. It's like, it's because it's like, there's a, there's an article or a podcast I was listening to. I was either listening to an article or reading a podcast. That, one of the two. Yeah, that was basically kind of saying, like, you know, and I understood that there's, like, this weird psychological thing. And, and this is what it is. It's because the movie and the movie release basically becomes the same venue as everything else that we're doing. Like, yeah, that's true, e- everything is remote. Everything is, like, Zoom. And everything is, like, oh, like, access it online at home. And it's just like, you know, I I understand the sentiment that, like, let's not pretend like we didn't have our complaints about movie going. But at the same time, it was something to do. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and it, yeah. it's like when now it's that's why I've been championing normalized it being in drive ins. Like, let's let's start releasing these new movies in drive in theaters, because I, I, I would like that, like, you know, being able mm. to go to a movie and you know i i'm not looking for a solution right here i'm just kind of like venting a little bit but i I thought about that when like this is the first like i saw a poster for a movie this is the next new movie with a name and some names behind it coming out and it's like oh and it's coming to your living room like everything else and i'm like uh like this kind of sucks first world problems definitely definitely. uh you know it's not my biggest issue more of a gripe but i definitely was kind of like yeah like i don't like it I hate yeah, it. But I mean it's just the reality that we are in right now. And yeah. As unfortunate as it is and And that's why we- you know what? I, I have to be honest. I am completely on board any movie when they say like, Oh, we're not releasing until until movie theaters are good to go. Yeah. Like I, I know like for some reason like there's this weird not for some reason, the the weird like how dare any studio even think about having to wait for a you know, theater release, just release it on VOD. And I'm like, no, I'm glad that they're waiting. Like just because you don't get the option, you know, you know, you don't just get it anyway. Yeah. Bond and black widow and and Kong and all those movies that they, you know, I don't think there's honestly, it really just depends on the movie, but I think like those types of films, like there's no benefit for them just dropping on VOD right now, especially kind of again, like that just seems like, like the Mulan stuff, like, you know, because I think the thing about VOD is that is that same sort of issue where everybody who's going to watch it is going to watch it on that first weekend mm-hmm. because they're the ones who know about it. And then, unlike his movies, you know, generally you have, like, people are like, oh, we'll go see it in, like, week two or week three when the theaters are less busy or whatever like that, especially for the bigger movies. And I think that the VOD experience kind of lacks that, where there's kind of a big center of attention because there is no sense of, like, well, I have to make time. For, it's, yeah, we're all at home. Mm-hmm. You know, or you could be at home. You can order Mulan or you can watch you know, uh, 
like Sonic the Hedgehog or whatever, like whatever it was back earlier in the time, like whatever you right, wanted. Right, right, like, right. Like, but like you, you just did it like when you were when you were home. And I think there's that same sort of issue. And so I think like movies like No Time to Die and Black Widow, you know, like I think that stuff could work for like you know the Oscar stuff or like or like the stuff that's kind of circling now or those you know horror movies where like a lot of it is that first weekend. But for those movies that you know bank on kind of two or three weeks of good box office stuff like i think like there's no point of putting it out on vod right now i just don't find myself hat finding that need that a lot of people say it's like oh i would just watch it on vod i mean i guess i would but no we, we definitely like it, it would happen but there's also like the thing is especially with vod like there's just so many there is so many options and especially with like a lot of like you know classic and older stuff out there too if you're just going to watch something like you just kind of like there's just as much stuff to watch that you just want to watch and like the new stuff is just kind of like okay it would just be there i think sure yeah admittedly i'm j- i'm just like venting like yeah. I'm, I, it's I just mean, a gripe i'm i, I don't been, know what else what i don't know listen, what the solution would be but yeah it's been a journey since no time to die first got delayed like it's been a whole <laughs> We, we talked about it. It's been a journey. So yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it, in positive, in, in positive, no time to die news. They've actually been like releasing like a bunch of music stuff for it, like uh, little Hans Zimmer clips, and uh, there were they actually, I think, just released uh, Billie Eilish music videos for it. Yes, well, which yeah. I thought was kind of interesting. Well, I they had released the song obviously, but I think like some of the videos for it are kind of new. Yeah, um, if I remember. But anyway, so uh, you know that was good because I like that song. So I think I think the podcast got delayed too, so that's good for us. Um. All right. So um. You know. Well, well no one more thing. Oh yeah. Go are, ahead. Are, mm-hmm. Well, are you still talking about theaters? Because I had another thing, real quick. Oh yeah. No. I mean, if you want to. Uh no, I was going to mention that we forgot to do a Harrison Ford for a Colossal, <laughs> and I had a perfect one, so I was really upset <laughs> that we forgot it. Okay. Go. Go ahead. Harrison Ford in Colossal was Jason Sudeikis's dad and the former owner of the bar. And, you know, it was like, you know, their relationship kind of led Jason Sudeikis to be like the asshole that he was. I felt like I was just like, of course, like I could imagine Harrison Ford being this grumpy old owner of the bar. And then Jason Sudeikis like, had to take over the bar. Like, just I like that. Yeah, that works. Father. I like I like that a lot. That's good. Yeah, it's good. I don't know if that's an insult to Harrison Ford, though. It's like, you know, Harrison Ford was your dad. That's one of the possible. I mean, it's a it can only way. go one or two ways. <laughs> Will, listen, Harrison Ford has played some assholes in his lifetime. Right. Like, he can play that role. What's the most asshole that Harrison Ford has played? It's There's that one movie where he's with his family in, like, the jungle, and it's, like, a dark movie about him going slowly crazy as he, like, forces mm. his family to, like, mm. I think he's, like, researching mosquitoes or something. Yeah, but Harrison Ford has that energy where he goes crazy, but, like, you kind of get it, like, because he just looks... <laughs> Like the epitome of life affecting a human being, like he I just. Feel like there is a movie where he's, you know, he's played like just a genuine just dick. Uh, Morning Glory, right? Yeah, that was another one. It was Rachel McAdams? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's an old inside joke. In, inside joke. Inside joke. All right, all right. Let's move yeah. on to let, let's let's move on to the movie. Speaking of old people, uh, <laughs> let's talk about an old movie. Um, hey, like this, dude, this is 1965. Yeah, this is... Um, this, so, this, th- again, we're in the same year as Thunderball for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our movie today is a, is a very different one for the podcast. Uh, very interesting movie. Uh, the Spy Who Came In From The Cold from 1965. Uh, so, yeah, I felt like, you know, just to get, out, get into why we're watching this right away, I... I 
there is another side to the spy world and the spy genre that I think that we've very barely touched upon over the course of talking about, you know, the biggest spy franchise of all time is just sort of the the more thrillerish spy and the more kind of grounded reality spy. Because one of the things we we know for sure is that Bond is a very fictionalized version of the spy. He's, you know, the suave going around the world with the gadgets and, and the girls and everything like that. And I feel like there is that other side to it uh, because Bond, of course, and the spy fiction genre in general is based on the reality of spies and, and the real life spies that especially in this sixties period in the cold war, which was kind of spies at their height almost. Um, and I felt like it was important to kind of take a look at something that kind of veered a little bit more towards that end of the spectrum. Yeah, definitely. Nick basically uh, like had us watch the Logan of uh <laughs> of uh, spy movies essentially was kind of my like my two takeaways from the movie was like very political and basically if daniel craig came back and logan the like the the his spy movies and it was also very surreal how much of craig i saw in this movie too yeah and i think we'll talk about that yeah for sure, i don't disagree with that but i do think there's a couple of things to to chat about mm-hmm First, one of the first things I wanted to talk about um, briefly uh, is kind of what we think about the world of spies, because I did a little bit of research just into sort of the history of spying. You know, I didn't I didn't go deep dive into it. I think there's probably a history podcast out there where if you want to get a full spy history. But I really felt that like what was interesting about the, the spy stuff that I looked into was Obviously, there's there's been a, a large history of spying within world history. Like you can go back to, you know, the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and 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 many of the Brit Britain wars and even all the way back to like the Roman times where there's just stories of spies. You know, whether it be for government purposes or you know with inner, inner you know, inner city politics or whatever that may be. But what's really interesting to me was that kind of the notion of the spy as kind of an actual part of popular culture didn't really originate until like about World War One, uh, you know, when Fleming's father was was fighting in the war. Because right at that time, there was kind of a big trial in France with with a with a with a spy or a alleged spy that kind of went back and forth, and, and that man eventually was proven innocent after being guilty a couple times. Um, we mentioned it in the um, uh, the uh, the 67 Casino Royale episode, but I, I kind of made fun of it then, but there is the real story of the Mata Hari, uh, the uh, European entertainer who was caught being a uh, spy for the Germans and executed. And as much as I kind of made fun of it being like referenced in, in um, 19, Casino Royale 1967, there is an element of like, well, this was a very kind of notable, famous person who was spying on 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 both sides essentially you know and, mm. and it kind of started to capture the public eye in that sense and and right around that same time around world war one what is considered to be the first true spy novel was written just in the early 1900s and also out of world war one is where many of the spy agencies start to pop up like uh, the uh, initially with with britain in world war one you get mi1 through mi19 which eventually goes down to mi5 and mi6 
you get kind of the British and, and the German intelligence and the French intelligence, and then into World War, you know, and in the lead up to World War II, you start to get the CIA and the FBI in America. So we've started to see within kind of these two world wars, this concept of the spy becoming sort of known in, in popular culture. And it became sort of a trope in and of itself. Uh, and I felt like it was just interesting to kind of look into that history of just kind of how generally recent, like the true spy genre and spy fiction started popped up in relation to reality of spies. Uh, and when we get into the Cold War, post-World War II, that's when kind of, especially you know, in retrospect, that's what we associate most with the spy. Uh, this period that we've been looking at through Bond and the move period we're going to look at today with uh, uh, Spy Who Came In From The Cold is really what, when, when you ask someone, when you tell someone, what do you think of a spy outside of Bond, you know, they, they might mention the Cold War because there's just this element of, especially because there was no war happening, mm-hmm. technically speaking. You know, there are wars that do happen, but there are, the war was between these spies, or at least that's what we think mm-hmm. in, in some sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree with all that. I mean, it's just basically highlighting, like, you know, for lack of a better term, and eye-rollingly so, it, it, it's kind of like, this is the real world version of it. But, you know, sometimes it's interesting, because sometimes when they say, like, this is the real world version of it, that's usually just code for, like, you know, this isn't going to, this is, like, going to be dark, essentially. Yeah. Like, you know, like, the stakes are going to be real, like, deaths matter, and then, like, you know, the, like, choices have consequences. I, I like to think of it more of, like, watching it. It's just, it's less, like, real world and dark as much as it's, like, the unglamorized version yeah. uh, of of what it is. And um, it was funny because um, I, 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 wa- I forget the name of it now, but one of the suggestions after watching this was, like, some Michael Caine movie. Um, right, yeah. Which I realize I never I've never seen a movie with young Michael Caine in it. You've never you've never seen the original Italian Job? No, I've never seen it. You um, should watch it. I think you'd really like it. Yeah, I I, I know his blood. quote is like I know that's where it's like you were supposed to blow the bloody doors off. <laughs> I know that's where that comes from. Um, yeah. But like, but I I started watching like the first five minutes of this movie, and it was another one where it wasn't dark and serious, but it definitely was like the more unglamorous version of mm-hmm. spy. So it was interesting that that they had um suggested that. But um so but the reason I also made that Logan comparison too, and this is without getting too much into the movie, but also kind of I think will help how we look at this is that it really is also uh positioned in a way especially this story where you could feasibly in some way like insert like the more your more glamorous views of what the spy game was to a certain degree because you're kind of dealing with like a guy at the end of his rope type of deal. And part of the story is like, you know, uh, very much like in a more real way, actually than something like the Craig movies do. It's like, like you, you like you're an old dog and you got to go back into the doghouse. Like it's, it's like, there's that kind of element to the story. So you can kind of at least mentally as like a viewer of, of a movie like this, like think that like okay this character has been through maybe an approximate version of like the uh the spy game that we know very very similar to like what they do in logan 
where they kind of retroactively not retroactively change things because it's like in that movie it was like okay like mutants and the x-men still exist but there's that line where it's like the comic books and he's like well all the x-men history existed but maybe not the way that you think but it's important that your reference point is still that like wolverine there was a guy named wolverine and he went on like super powered adventures so in a way like a movie like this uh can still be an answer to the bond and the spy genre because you can kind of at least emotionally, mentally fill in that like there were more uh, likable spy stories that maybe had an edge to them, and now you're kind of seeing like what the end of the rope is. Yeah, and I, and I think that too that um, this is definitely again just in general another part of the spy genre that we don't you know that we ta- we that eventually leads into like this is like kind of the mid '60s. This eventually leads into kind of the stronger kind of political thrillers of the late '60s, early '70s, mm-hmm. like. Um, like I think about like Manchurian Candidate and Three Days of the Condor, the Parallax View, like stuff like that. That's still kind of like maybe not exactly the spy stuff that we think about, but they're still kind of, again, the behind the scenes of everything and sort of, again, the, the missions and the crossing and the double crossing, which, again, is a very big part of what we imagine spies to be. Mm-hmm. Do you say so, the crossing and the double crossings? Yes. What's a, what's a crossing? This is, you know, you cross each other and then you double cross each other. That's, right, that's right, right. But yeah. crossing is a friendly one. Double crossing is when yes. like, you're allowed to cross a person, but when you turn back on it, then it's like, okay, yes. I get it. Fair enough, fair enough. Exactly. That's awesome. I, I, it's just like, I think that it's a big part of it too. Um, that's a good joke again, in something. It's like, you double, it's like, you double crossed me. No, I just, I just crossed you once. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good joke. Uh, anyway, so go, go ahead. Uh, so with that, I think it's about time we get into sort of the, the behind the scenes of this movie, which uh, as I got deeper into the, the studying about uh, Spy Who Came In From The Cold, uh, it became a lot more relevant and a lot more interesting to this podcast than I initially had thought. Uh, so once again, we have a spy movie that is based on a book or in some senses, a series of books. Uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, uh, Jean Le Carré, uh, an author of the, the original novel, Spy Who Came In From The Gold, which was written in 1963. Uh, so uh, born, he was born David John Moore Cornwell, and he adapted the name uh, John Le Carré for his uh, books, uh, which I will mention why in a second. Uh, but he was someone who grew up in uh, London, uh, England, uh, you know, in the 1930s into the 40s. So he was right, again, in the wheelhouse of post-World War One, right into growing up during World War Two. Uh, complicated childhood with his, his father was very much a, a gambling man and, and someone who lost money and, and, and gained money, you know, uh, on a dime. Uh, so he kind of grew up with just kind of his own pathway eventually went to college at oxford and eventually uh in the post uh world war ii era um made his way into mi5 so this man uh actually worked for mi5 and later mi6 and he basically his whole thing where he got into writing was he felt that the spy you know he was now in the spy world essentially and he felt that the spy fiction that was out there particularly 
one James Bond was harmful uh, to of espionage. And yeah. he felt that it was an unrealistic portrayal. So he decided, and with the encouragement of some of his fellow uh, agents in MI5, uh, decided to start writing. Um, so he uh, starts writing um, in 19, I think his first book is 1961. Yes, it's Call for the Dead. Uh, that's when he adopts the um, Jean-Luc Carrier name because, uh, you know, MI5 and MI6 officers are allowed to write, but they cannot write under their legal names for security reasons. Mm-hmm. So he adopts this, this name and he creates the character of George Smiley. Uh, for this book, who is basically the the exact opposite of Bond in every single conceivable way. Um, And he sort of starts to create this kind of spy universe. So the first two books are George Smiley books. And then his third book, uh, written in 1963, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, uh, features George Smiley, as we see in the movie, as a supporting character. Um, And he basically the first two books are very much like he just kind of writes like it's a spy thing, but again, just lower key, you know, it's George Smiley kind of on the edge of retirement, you know, solving murders and stuff like that. Uh, but the spy who came in from the cold was very much a deliberate sort of exploration of the morality of the spy and sort of a, a deep, again, uh, a deep antithesis of what Bond was. Uh, at that time, especially because in 1963, he's writing that book right off the tail end of the Bond film series coming to be. Because when he originally started writing, the Bond film series was just kind of in development. So he was really basing his um, his dislike of Bond off the Ian Fleming books. But now Dr. No and, uh, you know, From Us With Love are, are in the atmosphere and the Bond franchise is becoming even bigger than it originally was. So Spy Who Came In From The Cold was very much a, a means of like showcasing sort of the, the darker side of the spy, especially because he had had experience in Berlin and saw not this particularly, but some of this sort of stuff firsthand in, in that realm. So uh, that book, his third book, Spy Who Came In From The Cold, became his biggest hit mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and it kind of made him an author as opposed to an MI6 agent. Uh, especially uh, in 1964, the next year, there is a very famous, um, the Cromwell Five, which is a very famous expose of, of British uh, officers being implicated in leaking to the KGB. Uh, so which, which kind of uh, started some restructuring of MI6, uh, which led to John Le Carré deciding to leave uh, the spy game uh in general uh okay sorry i froze for a second you're good uh so that restructuring of mi6 led to john le carré uh leaving the spy game to become an author full-time and with him an author full-time meant that now his book was in it attention was on him attention was on his source material for a movie to be made especially now because with the Bond franchise becoming as big as it was now, 1964, we're right into Goldfinger really smashing the glass ceiling for Bond. We're kind of at the original height of the Bond franchise that now they were looking for these other sort of spy things, just anything kind of spy. And obviously we've talked a lot about the spy genre exploding on TV, but there was 
conceivably an audience for this kind of more gritty, more real, dram- dramatic spy novel that you can get a big-time actor for, kind of get an Oscar push for, and kind of market it based off of that. Um, so one thing I should mention is, of course, we, we get to the production of the movie, and there was, there was one other actor considered for the main role of Alec Loomis in this movie, which was uh, Burt Lancaster, um, who would have been kind of Canadian, so they would have had to shift some of the story in some respect. But otherwise, the, the choice was Richard Burton, who was known as one of the greatest actors working at that time, also uh, had the very famous relationship, was in the middle of his very famous relationship with Elizabeth Taylor, at this point so he was definitely a name and an acting name and it was just like this was going to be a showcase for him to act and be be like the great actor that he was um so with that um he's cast in the movie as well as our lead female character um is uh nan perry who's played by claire bloom who was actually uh, Richard Burton's partner most of the time on stage back in the 50s, Mm. Um, but was also very awkward because Claire and Richard were one of the many affairs that Richard had (laughs) while he was courting Elizabeth Taylor. So there was some awkwardness in that regard. Uh, But that was basically, in in terms of the script, in terms of the movie, uh, Lake Corey was very happy with the production. um, And, you know, it was one of those things where, the, the movie is basically the book with the one exception of the lead female character's name, which in the movie is Nan Perry. Uh, in the book, it's Liz Gold. And the longstanding rumor slash accepted fact about this was because of Elizabeth Taylor. They didn't want to be like, oh, Richard Burton in a movie with a character named Liz. It was just, you know, the attention wanted to be on the movie, even though part of it is like Burton's star was kind of his relationship with, with Taylor in many respects. Mm-hmm. But they decided to kind of change that though uh, Le Carre kind of implied that there was also a sense of trying to, to wipe away the, the book character's Jewish history with, with the new name change. Mm. Uh, one thing I do want to mention that I haven't mentioned yet is we do get that uh, Le Carre's other character um, that is very, his most famous character is George Smiley, who plays a, a supporting character role in this movie. This would be the first of many appearances of George Smiley on screen. Uh, because, again, George Smiley is a character that is uh, in a numerous amount of books, including uh, most recently was portrayed by Gary Oldman in the movie Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Mm, okay. So that I, I've the, seen that as well. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I did not connect those dots. Yeah, so th- that was something I didn't connect until I started doing the research. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, because George Smiley is a character that's been portrayed by, like, Alec Guinness. And, and, and Gary Oldman, among many others. And he, he does have, a, 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 at least in, in Britain, there's a large respect for the character as well. That, they're, that, that um, it kind of not on exactly the same level as Bond, but like right in that wheelhouse of just like, it, it is a character that is known to British audiences. Um, but another thing is that, yes, because the book was written by an MI5 and MI6 or someone who had experience with that, there is a level of, really digging into the politics of the cold war and and the 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 russia and german and and uh, you know britain and all that sort of all that sort of stuff going into and and and, and something that lee Carré would explore in his other books 
and his, you know, the other films based on his books would really go into sort of the, the politics of, of the Cold War. And especially like Tinker Sager's Taylor Soldier Spy is based off uh, of that, you know, those British agents being KGB spies, uh, that, that whole incident in Britain. And so there's definitely an element of this is another book series that kind of makes its way into the filmic landscape. Uh, as we've seen with Bond, as we've seen with Born Identity, as we've seen with a, with a lot of time and time again, that these these books kind of translate to the big screen in some sort of sense. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I mean, it's just, again, the kind of, uh, it, it, it was kind of, again, was kind of a way to take advantage of the, the, the spy genre getting bigger with Bond, just in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. absolutely. And again, it's just very interesting that this kind of comes out of a direct response to Bond, which I didn't even know until I started doing research on this. I kind of chose it because I was I was considering other stuff. I was considering sort of those 70s political thrillers like Three Days of the Condor just to take a look at something else like this. But I felt like this one I knew because of the Burton performance does get nominated for an Oscar. See, that's and, interesting. And like that. I, I thought that was in, uh, that was definitely implied, like even from the opening moments. Uh, yeah. Just like the the first act of the film, I, I I kind of had the sense that it was an answer to. But I mean, again, yeah. I, I go back to the Logan example. I I just got big vibes from um, that, which is also interesting because I think we have more of a history of the answer to Bond being kind of more of like a a deconstruction or like a like a satire or pastiche of like something like with Bond, whether it's like comedic or like we're really going to break down the tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of refreshing to get a – I don't want to say a deconstruction, but an answer to Bond that's not necessarily a, a direct deconstruction, um, yeah. which is what I thought this was through and through ultimately. Um, and well, also, I, like, you know, being its own thing, like it doesn't necessarily take the language of Bond either. Right, yeah. I, I think it was just more so like I kind of gathered where it's like, well, this is like the other side, and like there's definitely things you could take in terms of being that response to mm-hmm. kind of the crazier side of the spy genre. But again, I just didn't know that the author himself was directly responding to Bond. Right, which I right. Was very interesting. Yeah, and, I don't uh, think you have. I don't think you have a speech like you do at the end of this movie without like being like, okay, this is like you know their commentary on yeah. the spy genre. Yes. Um, yeah. So um, I kind of gathered that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's basically kind of what I wanted to talk about with with the spy who came in from the cold mm-hmm. uh, in terms of its production. Um, I guess you know just the general stories of during the you know they they recreated the checkpoint Charlie in Dublin for the shoot, and that's where there was a lot of uh, uh, Richard Burton and, and Liz Taylor arguing to the point where uh, John Lee Carre was actually invited to set partially to do kind of uncredited rewrites, but also to be kind of a drinking buddy. <laughs> For for Richard to kind of distract him from right from all, the, all the Liz Taylor, which is also stuff. funny given like the content of the of the film as yeah. well. And, and and Lee Carey said that he had a great respect for for Burton, and, and Burton wouldn't have been his first choice for the role, but he really kind of impressed him with the performance. Uh, and generally speaking, was very happy with how the movie turned out. Cool. Um. So, all right. So should we get into talking about the movie? Yeah, I'm very interested to see how this goes, but I'm very interested to talk about the spy who came in from the cold. All right, let's do it. Why did Mont let me go? I'm a risk to him now. As you said, it was a bargain. No you, no me. What was my part in all this? I want to know. You were a pawn in the plot. 
London knew it was no good just killing Fiedler. If he'd been killed, people would have started asking by whom, why. Maybe told friends he suspected what maybe he'd left notes, incriminating notes. London had to eliminate suspicion. Public rehabilitation, that's what they organized for Mont. I was sent to discredit him, he was sent to discredit me. And love? We made it very easy for them. They used us. They cheated us both because it was necessary. Fiedler was nearly home already. If it hadn't been for us, Munt would have been killed. They were bloody clever. All the way down the line, they were bloody clever. Clever? They were foul. How can you turn the world upside down? What rules are you playing? There's only one rule. Expediency. Munt gives London what it needs, so Fiedler dies and Munt lives. It was a foul, foul operation, but it paid off. Who for? What the hell do you think spies are? Moral philosophers measuring everything they do against the word of God or Karl Marx? They're not. They're just a bunch of seedy, squalid bastards like me. Little men, drunkards, queers, henpecked husbands, civil servants playing cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten little lives. Do you think they sit like monks in a cell, balancing right against wrong? Yesterday I would have killed Munt, because I thought him evil and an enemy, but not today. Today he's evil and my friend. London needs him. They need him so that the great moronic masses you admire so much can sleep soundly in their flea-bitten beds again. They need him for the safety of ordinary, crummy people like you and me. You killed Fiedler. How big does a cause have to be before you kill your friends? What about your party? There's a few million bodies on that path. All right. Some serious stuff going <laughs> yeah. on in there. Indeed, yeah. Uh, very much so. so it, it, it's like you can't not see Craig delivering that it's almost kind of like I almost kind of like would oh would want Craig to stay on or come back if they went full on what they do in this movie yeah because that um yeah if they truly did a Logan and like went yeah. to do this instead and, of and also speaking of Craig I will say the big reveal at the end of this movie uh, I do share the sentiment of the new knives out meme going along going on right now the the whole like it makes no sense compels me though <laughs> it's like i kind of had i had to like really rewire my brain to like follow uh mm-hmm. the 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 twists and, and and turns but i i i made it through so anyway uh spy who came in from the cold um yeah i dug it it's pretty yeah, good no this is this is pretty definitely kind of i i definitely really enjoyed this watch and it was very Again, very kind of different than what we've kind of seen, especially on the spy side. Honestly, like of everything that we've seen on the podcast, in terms of just tone, it, it kind of reminded me most of 54 Godzilla, just in terms of just kind of the more serious sort of look at all this sort of stuff. Uh, can, can, I, most- can I say something? I want to see, I thought about this in my head, and I really want to see if you're going to get it. And I'll know based off of your reaction to it. Just, yeah. I want you to think about what happens in the movie like the actual content, the plot, how it unfolds, the ending. I want you to think about all that when I say this. Okay. But in a way, I almost saw this movie as a not funny Coen Brothers movie. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. You, you, you kind of see what I mean? A hundred percent. Like, because yes. there was a moment when I was watching this movie where I was like, you know what? I, I feel like you could get a little bit of like humor out of this. Like, you could still yeah. have like the darkness in it, but like, I, there's a few scenes in here that I think you could play up some laughs and like a few oh. running jokes. But yeah. like, yeah, this is definitely in the realm of like a Miller's Crossing for them. Yes. Yeah. yeah definitely. Like, there, there, there's a few. Like, especially like when he is like, you know, going doing things like, you know. Uh, trying out for like the or going for like the library's assistant and how he like interacts with like you know the you know nan and like some of the other characters i was like you could you could get some jokes out of this yeah it could have um, been one of their george clooney roles for sure yeah definitely so sorry go ahead what you were you were talking well i mean i i was very interested in, in, in watching this because again it's very different again it kind of reminded me more tone wise of anything we've watched in terms of 54 godzilla mm-hmm. uh, not just because of the black and white nature of the film uh, but in terms of just the, the more serious tone, uh, even with, you know, Gojira having the giant monster in it, there's that, you know, serious reflection on, mm-hmm. on, on yeah, World yeah, War yeah. II and everything like that. And I think that this sort of reflects on on what the current era of Britain and, and, and again, you know, like Hooray's, um experience in MI5 and MI6, I think there's a lot of that in there. Um, it was really interesting. And I, 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 like I said, I didn't know it was a direct response to Bond until we, we uh, I did the research on it. But when watching it, I definitely felt like, yeah, there's definitely kind of even just the general sort of bondish tropes, but in a completely different way. Like we still get like, you know, the meeting with, you know, his head officer, which in this movie is control, you know, like kind of the M meeting. We get like, you know, a a girl relationship, but again, it's completely, completely different than anything we've ever seen really in in a Bond film. And even like the 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 traveling and kind of, you know, we get the sense of like we get like you know a couple scenes where like they're on this mountain trail and they're like talking to this very serious spy stuff, and, and, and again, it's just sort of like the unglamorous version of all that in, in, in many respects, and, and the more, uh, you know, tragic and, and slightly dark version of what we've seen in that, and I think it's definitely a, a good watch, and and just kind of one of those just sort of classic Cold War thrillers in in. in and not in a thriller like, you know, what we kind of think like, oh, it's like thrilling. But there's sort of, again, like the edge of just, you know, who's who knows what and who knows who. And mm-hmm. and like kind of all the reveals at the end. There's kind of this it's a classic Cold War spy story. And it's told very well uh, within this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely I mean, right from the get go, I like got this vibe that like, OK, this is like. You know, if not like a Jane, well, honestly, like you really could look at it this way, and, and this is kind of like where I think that the viewing experience can be dependent on who's watching it. But I almost think like there's kind of a interesting way of watching this. Like if you look at this movie as if he were like a James Bond type in his youth, like you yeah. know, you like even if you look at that because the uh, the the conceit of the movie is like you know. Here is a guy who, you know, really shouldn't be on the field anymore, um, or at least control doesn't want him on the field anymore. Like, you get that sense that, like, you know, he really is, he should be retiring. Like, you know, the opening scene where, like, the the, the movie opens on, they're, they're waiting for an informant or something like that, yes. or like, yeah. Yes. Um, or somebody who's defecting, something of that nature. Yeah, they're waiting for the informant. Uh, I think it's Reinhardt or something mm-hmm. like that was his name. So uh, they're they wa- kind of, yeah. they're waiting on him, and then you know he is kind of like staying at his post, and you have like these other um, officers come up and saying like, "Hey, like control says for you to like you know to rest and stand down. We'll we'll see 
we'll see through the rest of this and you know um uh um how, how and how do you say his name um, Alec Loomis Loomis yeah he is um so he's kind of like you know no I'm not going you know I'm going to wait here until until he gets there he it's you're already setting the stage that like you know everybody else wants him to stand down and he won't like basically yeah. that's what it is and then uh, this mission goes south, and you know his informant doesn't successfully cross the the um, like the gates, the Berlin or, Wall, the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Um, and um, so the the mission is somewhat of a, a failure. Um, and then um, he basically has this um, uh, confrontation with uh, Control back at MI6 um, about uh, it's not set out right, but the implication is like, listen, like. You really should be retired, but like you can also sense that it was funny because you can almost sense that like you can read into that M Bond history because yeah. you can even see like the acting just in this one scene alone was great because um, Burton like just really nails this aged, dejected, paranoid, just life has just beaten him down look. Uh, but also, you know, a guy who probably, you know, but not a bad guy. That That's the thing. It's like there's enough of him where it's like, you know, morally still like a decent guy, but life has just beaten him down. But th- there's this moment where I love that I just felt was mesmerizing where he's sitting down at the desk of control. And he's there because the scenes had set up to that point that he's probably going there to either – you know, uh, be reassigned or let go or whatever. Like he's yeah. waiting for that call. And, you know, uh, control's just going around like, you know, he's pouring tea and everything. And like, you know, Loomis is just staring daggers at him the whole time, like during that entire scene. Um, so just the dynamics of that is really good. But then as that scene goes on, you kind of get this sense that, yeah, control wants him to stand down too. But, and then it kind of makes more sense as the plot unfolds. But, you know, he's kind of begrudgingly keeping him on the field for probably this mission that Loomis doesn't know is going to be what it is. It's not necessarily the ideal situation he wants to be in. But you can kind of get the sense of, in retrospect, that Control kind of has this M relationship, the uh, this M bond relationship, where he's like, yeah, I really should probably just be forcing this guy into the desk job, but okay, I'll give him a break and I'll keep him out there, even though in his head he knows it's going to be for this other more right. elaborate and, and, purpose. And, and, and as we get into the rest of the movie, yeah, that there's definitely implications of even like how, you know, that scene goes into what happens towards the end of the movie. But mm-hmm. yeah, the implication is, yeah, because the whole thing is that with that opening scene with, with their informant, it's like their last big informant from, you know, the east side of Berlin and, and kind of, you know, behind the Iron Curtain that they have with that uh, Burton's character, Alec Loomis, has. And with that character, you know, finally shot down by, you know, the the east berlin guards Mm -hmm. that that basically like burton's in a position where he's called back because it it it, the implication is just like that the the stuff that he's been doing in berlin and that checkpoint charlie has just gone down the tubes essentially right right and eventually like that scene with with uh control which again i agree brilliantly acted on on both sides is essentially like the implication is like you know kind of like we're gonna move you to a desk job with cards there's kind of like will he take the desk job but like there's kind of like will he just kind of go off and do his own thing you know mm-hmm. and just like kind of see i i kind of i even read it more uh like you know i thought the desk job part was pretty explicit because because if you notice that scene control never ultimately like says that that's what he should do or he never yeah. uh, he never like explicitly hits that point like 
you know, there's kind of vagaries and then like, you know, Loomis kind of has this, oh, don't, you know, don't mess around with me. Like, you know, just let me go if like you're going to give me a desk job. So yeah. he kind of reads into this and I just lo- I just love when you can establish history between characters like very mm-hmm. efficiently. And I felt like this was one of those. And I felt like it's enriched, especially when you see where the plot goes. Um, yes. So right from the get go, like just those few opening scenes, I thought really set the tone for the type of movie that we were dealing with. And, uh, and yeah. I was a I was a fan um, going in. Um, yes. Go ahead. Uh, so that's basically like then it's like again where we we next find uh, Loomis uh, going out for a new job, mm-hmm. um, and he's kind of been uh, assigned to a library's assistant, or that's like the position that's, that's the cover open to him. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, again, the whole the movie kind of plays with whether or not like he's actually been you know let go or did he leave. Like there's there again, yeah. it's kind of like again that spy thing where what the you know what the characters know what the audience knows is kind of always in flux because that's kind of part of the point of the movie yeah i I will say my one kind of gripe about the movie is that there were at times where i where even i felt like i probably a little bit more lost than i should have been like as the Mm -hmm. movie went on it be kind of came clear um but like I, i i kind of found myself like was he let go or i i thought he was on a mission and like so when it moves on from that scene because he's like, I need you to stay out there a little bit. And then he's like on this mission. But then there were other elements where he's like, you know, going out drinking. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Was he like, a, and it was just, that could just be on me. Like, I just had well, a I mean, hard I time think, following again, it's like some the of implication, that. Again, it's just sort of like, if there's any implication for what you're supposed to know, it's that like, maybe there is kind of a mission. But, you know, now it's so small potatoes. It's like in London. You mm-hmm. know, it's not, he's not out in Britain. He's not at the wall. He's not like right, right on the edge of the curtain anymore. He's like. If he has, if he's doing anything, it's the small potatoes, right? You know, you know, if anything, looking well, at stuff so, in like libraries in Britain. So. so the big kind of like kind of just, I think this is like it's stepping ahead, but I think it's going to frame exactly how we can talk about it. But ultimately, the the plot of the movie is is that control is setting up a um, a scenario in which. Um, they basically who are they infiltrate? They're infiltrating like a a, a communist like uh well, like yeah, organization. They're, they're, that they're that's like what the, it is. Yeah. So like again, sort of the on the other side of the Berlin Wall, kind of like the East Germans, the the, the Russians, kind of that coalition. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they're there's so basically yeah, what they're doing is they're setting up Loomis mm-hmm. to be to appear to be a good defector. Mm-hmm. You know that he. He will be approached. They're setting him up to be approached by, you know, these again, these sort of communists. Well, more so than that, before you go on, what they really want to do is like set him up to look like a dejected, like, you know, end of his rope. Um, yeah. uh, what's it called? Uh, like uh, MI6 agent. Right, um, yes. And then also do things like encourage his. Uh, less than desirable habits such as his drinking habits like and and that was also like a really in retrospect looking at it that's a really funny kind of like bond like like you know uh reformatting like a trope of bond like bond's a drinker and like now they're kind of like all right well they're actually going to feed into this like oh he's a drunk and like you know they want him to kind of like always be like haggard and like look like he's at the end of his rope yeah they're Um, basically setting him up to be sort of again like Someone again on the end of his rope, drunk, you know, going to jail. The to ideal the candidate where... for betraying his his uh, his, his country. country. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
uh, with, 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 as they tell him, with the, with the implication that he will go to these people um, and mis- basically misinform on Munt, which is another uh, like you know, high-ranking agent within this communist organization. Yeah. That's who they're after. They're after this guy named Munt. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and the idea is to to implicate him as a you know misinform, implicate him as a a British spy so that he'll get killed. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's the implication that that he's gonna misinform, so it'll put pressure on the communists to kill Munt. You know, for you know betraying his country. So again, kind of a whole you know spies betraying spies and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the whole idea wait was is, it was it that they thought no oh no they they wanted to make it seem like he was a British agent. got it okay yeah yes, you know you're yeah, right you're yeah right, they yeah. wanted they wanted it, 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 it as to tell Loomis and and the mission is like you're gonna make you're gonna give her information that makes Munt seem like a British agent so that the communists will kill him mm-hmm. without defecting himself right with, without with, without, yeah. without truly defecting yeah. and so and this is where i'll just kind of if you don't mind i'll just get this out of the way about what yeah. the reveal of the movie is mm-hmm. and so the big reveal of the movie is is that the plot wasn't that straightforward and that munt was actually a british or like he was actually working for mi6 yes like that he was, like Instead of misinforming that Munt is legitimately right. a, yeah, an agent for Britain. And what who they were they were looking for, they were looking for somebody within Munt's rank. Because did they ex- did they explicitly say if Munt was like part of the Communist Party, but then had defected and is now working for MI six? And that's Yeah, that's it. basically the implication. Okay. Yeah. So then yeah, they cause, were Yeah, because I think earlier they talk about that Munt was once captured by Britain. Right. Uh, which actually Funny enough, happens in Lecrae's first book that wasn't adapted. Oh, that's funny. So it, 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 we don't know the effect in the first book, but the first book is about like Munt, right? Know, is a character. So, so yeah. The, so the implication is that Munt, when he was defected by Britain, uh, well, Munt, well, he was captured by Britain, defected to them, went back, and has been feeding them information. Ever right, since. as the head of this party, and um, and they're basically trying to root out like somebody who's going to cause problems for that right. si- there, there, situation. There, there's someone who, like, Munt's getting close to being caught in this. Yes, that's what so, it is. He, he's getting caught, and, and basically they have to weed out who's the person who is ruining yeah. this for right. them. And then basically uh, Loomis is just kind of like a wild card to yeah. make. It, it's kind of that plot where they send in, like, the agent for a mission, but he's actually there for a reason he doesn't know. And then mm-hmm. the higher ups, you know, know it, and then of course, you know, that creates complications Cause, cause and their, more risk. I, their idea is their hope is that Loomis will do the misinformation, but then there will be something that actually proves his misinformation to be misinformation. Right. They're gonna make Loomis get caught to be a fake defector, so that the right the um uh the allegations against Munt being a British spy seem ridiculous right you know it's basically they're sending him in unbeknownst to him to rock the boat enough to actually knock out the person that they actually want to knock out like yes, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's basically what the plot and, is so it's again, one of those yeah yeah and i think it's one of those implications too where there's a lot to read into that because again that's a big part of the movie and as you watch it because again you don't really know that until the very end and we'll talk about some of the other specifics but i think again it's like there's that implication again like the uh, the bond being you know of a character being at the end of his rope that, you know, and control kind of having that original, like, we shouldn't send you out there. But 
I think there, you know, you could read into it very much that the implication is, well, it really doesn't matter, you know, either, you know, he succeeds and, you know, we can get him out of there or if he fails, then he's already out of our hair. Right, right. Anyway, I, and, and I went into it, like, as the plot went on. Um, so there's a moment in the movie, which is another very well, one of the things that Burton does in this movie, um, very well, Burton, that's his last name, right? I'm getting yeah, that right. Burton. Yeah, Richard Burton. One of the things that he does extraordinarily well in this movie is really able to flip that switch between older gentleman Bond to angry, really angry Craig Bond. <laughs> like, you know, there, there are just moments where, you know, he just he just snaps and he's just able to switch back and forth. And one of the moments I like, you know, he's talking to... There's an ongoing thing where he's he keeps on going up the ladder of this, like, communist group. Um, which was, again, one of my favorite running jokes in the, in the movie where there's this funny bit where every time he gets to the next person, they belittle the guy who brought him there. Like they always belittle like the, like the superior always belittles like the guy who's, you know, who's handing him off. Like, and it happens from like the first guy all the way up to the top. Like I, I just thought that was super funny. Um, yeah. as like you know, because they would always establish the new guy as being like, all right, here's the 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 next like you know hardcore bad guy who's gonna give you know Loomis a run for his money, and then they take him to the next guy, and then it would just be like, yeah, yeah, just take the car around back to that, that guy, yeah. and they would do that. That was one of those moments where I'm like, the oh, fir- the first that that's guy, some that could get some like humor out of that if you wanted to make this funnier. When the first, because there's the first guy that approaches him at the jail, and he brings him to this club. Oh, he wussed out like in seconds. <laughs> well, no, and he, he looks like he was about to cry. Mm-hmm. Like he's, you know, he's like, you know, like the guy like tells him off is like, get out of here. Mm-hmm. And like, you could just see the tears in this in the original guy's eyes. He's like, is that what you want? Yeah. yeah well, get out of here. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know that that's kind of I think there's um subconsciously trying to like, you know, um make a commentary on like this party devotion that ultimately that the movie kind of kind of comes down on in a more nihilistic way yes, um, yes. that that's and happening. The, the general, like, again, like you are seem like you're important, but you can completely be brushed off like with no. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and ultimately you're right about kind of like what, where we get to with the Loomis character is like, you know, the movie's kind of setting up this, this uh, subconsciously setting up this, uh, uh, like this, uh, these hints that this is what the movie is going to be about. It's like, you're, yeah. you're constantly just a piece that can be, you know, tossed aside. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, there's the moment in the movie where, you know, he is talking to one of the many members of this party as he's like going up the ladder uh, under an alias. But then um, basically at a certain point in the movie, MI6 just owns up at least like the ruse of what they're doing. It's like, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go, and through these ranks and implicate, you know, um, Mont, yeah. Mont, yeah. And then halfway through, uh, he finds out that there's a wanted ad out for him. Yeah, in in a British newspaper that he's missing, right? He's listed as missing, and that base that ultimately kind of like it, it, it's kind of twofold. It's like because now you as an audience, you're kind of like wondering, like you're like, oh my god, like they like MI6 turned their back on him, so now he really is screwed like or like right. he, he there's no turning back for him he either he yeah. you and and you're kind of and it's kind of already like wait so 
is this a setup just to get rid of him or is this part of the plan like you know to like really you know cement him in there and that's where the mystery and the thriller element of it really comes in where you as an audience member i think are are guessing but that moment of acting was really well good or really good where he like looks at the paper and there's just that real close up of him just being like i am screwed i yeah. don't know i don't know I what mean, i'm doing i mean burton is the like, richard burton is like regarded as one of the greats and there's a reason for it like mm-hmm. he, he he does a lot of subtle stuff throughout the movie um that really kind of you know ri- enriches the character of of loomis mm-hmm. um a- a- and it's just like it's just it, burton is one of those actors that i'm you know most familiar with him in who's afraid of virginia wolf where he won his oscar mm-hmm. um which is another great performance of his but he, there's such just again like an old school just like you know performance out of it and I, I just love watching watching that um oh now i remember why i was uh, bringing that up so basically there came a point in the movie where i thought it was going to be very explicitly that mi6 was doing this to get rid of him yeah like and, and then i and then i thought for then, then there was a minute where i thought like man is this movie just going to be a giant elaborate scheme to show him to like teach him that he needs to get retired <laughs> Like I thought, like it was like you know when he's in that the the tribunal at the end. I thought it was gonna be like, it's like see, and this is why this was all staged, and this is why I was like, is it wow? Is this movie gonna get that crazy? But there was a moment where I thought it was gonna be more explicitly like they were trying to get rid of him, and then I think right. they, it ended up being a little bit more nuanced that like he's expendable. But another element about the movie that I liked was that when you really look at everything going on, he has. So many, like, he's pretty much safe throughout the entire movie mm-hmm. when you really think about it. Like, yeah. I mean, there may be an element here or there where it could have gone wrong, but up until the very end, everybody's giving him an out. Mm-hmm. Like, so it, it did show that, like, MI6 didn't really turn their back on him. Right. And the, ch- and the choice that, spoilers, gets him killed at the end of the movie is his own choice. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, everybody, like, both sides, like, you know... Once the plot is actually revealed and it turns out Munt is actually like at this point, he thinks him and Nan, which we'll get into, are going to be arrested and who knows what's going to happen to him. And then it's revealed like, oh, Munt is actually like a British agent and he's helping them, you know, get out and they're going to cross the the wall. And at that moment when they were going to cross the wall, I'm like, oh, no, the beginning of the movie is going to happen and they're not going to let him cross the wall. Like, I thought, like, oh, the, okay, full circle. I get it. Okay, storytelling. That's awesome. Um, and then, you know, they are crossing the wall and one of Munt's guys comes in and takes her out. Right, because the whole thing is, like, you know, she – we'll talk about Nan in a second, but mm-hmm. she's the only civilian that has any knowledge of any of this. Right. So she's the only one that, you know, is actually in danger of revealing this plot to anybody. Right. And then um, – so he's on the wall, and then one – so in, in, he's on the wall right on the top, and there's a um, – on the other side – who is that? Is that just like an agent, or is that Smiley? That's Who is Smiley. It? Okay, that's Smiley. So Smiley's like, come on, like, c- come on our side of the wall. And then the other guy, like one of Munt's guys on the other side of the wall, is saying, "Go back to your side, dude. Like yeah. it's over. Like it's got you're good to go." And um, Loomis is just like, you know, he kind of relents, and you can, at this point in the movie, the the subtext of the movie is like. What, what does it all mean? Like it's, it's all pointless. So then he goes down to the, like the to Nan's body and then gets shot himself. And 
that. But I well, thought it was interesting that like everybody's giving him an out. And when you really look at the fact that like his entire the entire plot of the movie is this MI6 orchestrated, like very convoluted plot, like he was kind of safe throughout the yeah. entire movie. But it's like kind of like, all right, if you're gonna be get to this certain age or this certain time where we really don't want you out in the field. You can be out in the field and we'll take care of you, but it's now going to be on our controlled terms. Like you're you're not going to be in control of any of this anymore, which I thought right. was interesting. And again, it's like you know, it's like he's pretty much safe. But again, if anything did go wrong, then, oh yeah, you know, that would have been on him. Is. Yeah. And I think the end of the movie. I mean, I I, I wanted to get to to the Nancy the Nan character, but the other part of that ending that's very important is Burton's. Um, uh, Loomis has also been in a reality where everybody wants him for you know not him but for what he can bring you know the communists want him for the information uh fielder who is like the main interrogator we get to wants him so he can implicate munt right because that's he's the one who suspects it right control wants him to you know save munt you know as, as we know uh and, and it's really only nan is the only person that has throughout this entire movie shown any genuine care for him as a person right and so when she's dead and that that moment where he realizes, like, I can survive here, but I do care more, more about the person that just died in front of me than surviving myself. It is like, interesting because, like, the only other character that you can say maybe gets any close to that is Control. And I just think that's more of just, like, a colleague, like, a sympathetic colleague relationship. Yeah. But it, it is interesting that out of everybody in the movie that Nan stands out as a character who really, for the first time, really shows true not even empathy but just real caring for somebody like genuine like i i i I care for this without any of the um uh the jadedness that somebody like loomis is like because like even he like clearly like he he goes as far as he can to make sure that she can't be involved and implicated in anything like he he insists on that um but even his character is like just very jaded so it, it the nan character was stood out in a good way of being like a character who just is a genuinely caring person, which makes sense yeah. given like the, the history of that character and who they, how they set her up. Yeah. So Nan is uh, someone who Loomis meets when he's working in this library assistance job, like back at the beginning of the movie where again, they kind of, was he, did he let go? Is he still on the mission? Like again, part of that's still kind of, uh, you know, questionable to the audience, but he gets this library job and he meets Nan. And they like have some like some moments together where like you know they talk about like werewolves, which I thought was a fun moment mm-hmm. um, together. Because he he has to uh, learn how to like subcategorize library books because they want it done in like a weird way. And so she, it's like lycanthropy. What's that? It's like people who yeah. turn into wolves. <laughs> and it's just like and then there's a fun joke where again just their banter. Again, like just the small things with banter where it's just like. Uh, like he like looks at the book like you know opening it's like oh it seems like it's been checked out a lot it's like no it's just this one guy who checks it out about once a month and it burns like every full moon right that was funny that was good like but again just a little moment where you can see the genuine sort of nature of their relationship but eventually nan invites him to her apartment where they have a discussion that she is part of the british communist party Mm -hmm. and there is that sort of that that sort of thing where it's again he has his history with you know the capitalists oh yeah no it's like if you think that today's movies are political like this was like very you know mm-hmm. o- overt not and I, I don't mean that in a bad way but it was just generally like you know just very explicit and like this person argues their views and this and this yeah. person argues uh their views and, and you know it's funny it's like when you go back on it like 
and you really look at it like I mean it, it's all kind of obvious stuff like because ultimately at the end of the day it, it's kind of like you know you're a communist and like you're fighting against like a capitalist like you know hierarchy or society but like you know in the world of spies none of it matters like it's just like that, that's kind of ultimately if you were to distill the point of the movie right. that, that's all it is really i mean it, it really is that both sides have their demons and both sides have their you know yeah it's every it's the everybody sucks thing like right, yeah. Th- th- yeah that's really what it comes it, down to an implication in that yeah, yeah. for sure but mm. Uh, but I, but I do I do think that the the relationship between Loomis and Nan I think actually works out not works out because they die, um, but it, it it works from a from a movie perspective I think quite a bit uh, in, in terms of those two characters even with Nan being like even because again it's like again just sort of the Bond relationship thing you know just going off of that where it's like you know Bond a lot of times has these you know civilian characters and and these these women that you know get more involved than they should be right you know, or 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 there's like you know they kind of get roped into this crazy world of spies but i think this movie takes that kind of idea and, and distills it into again a very sort of gritty where eventually like nan again is caring like he's she's the one that comes to him when he when he lets out of jail and you know again he's trying to make sure like she's not implicated at all she's done you know and he like breaks it off before he leaves uh for his you know uh interviews and stuff with the with all these uh, communist agents but you know, right at the you know, then we see a small scene where Smiley comes into her apartment with which again the implication is okay, now she's still getting more involved with the British uh stuff. And then the the big reveal is that there's the big trial for Munt at the end of see, the movie. So at this point I thought that they were just cutting all ties with him. So I thought they were I thought she was getting axed. That's what right. I thought it was when I when when I first watched it, but then it turns out um that it's left ambiguous purposefully. Um, yeah, at that point. Yeah, because she comes to the tribunal at the end. That was a good twist, by the way. I mean, or at least a good like rope a dope. Like I didn't, I didn't see that coming, even though they did set it up. Like where right, they're like, she oh, thinks, she, yeah, go ahead. She thinks she's going for an exchange program with like the Communist Party in, in East Berlin, mm-hmm. uh, East Germany, uh, and then eventually when Loomis is, you know, he's there for this trial. They they feel like they're at a point where it's like. Fielder, who is Munt's right-hand man, is the one implicating Munt. And he's basically telling what we find out is the truth, that, you know, he has this kind of proof that Munt was, you know, taken in by Britain and became a double agent at this point and, you know, miraculously made it back to Britain or to Berlin, all yada, yada, yada. And then Loomis is like, okay, this is what I want. And then Munt's defense is like, okay, we, we, we know we have a hole and they bring in Nan. And they basically use Nan to prove uh, that uh, Loomis is still working for the British. Right. She and, she ends up being kind of like a loose thread that um right. it, that Im- implicates him. Yeah. And, and, um, and she yeah. she has no idea what's going on. Right. This is right. The first she's, she, this is the first she's knowing of Loomis as a spy. So this is all like kind of new to her too. And and Loomis is you know now panicking because now he has roped in a completely innocent party into this. And it's like, again, it's like her being in danger that that reveals, you know, that makes him say, yes, I mm-hmm. am still working for the British. Our plan was to do this, yada, yada, yada. And then it gets Fielder killed, which, again, was the whole point of everything. Right. It, it's funny because it all worked out. And, and a, a couple of things I do want to mention. And just to kind of clarify, Fielder is months second in command and ends up yeah. being the person that they were after. He's the guy yes. who... You know, he's not part of it. He's an actual, like, you know, d- devoted member of the Communist Party, and he's trying to basically 
you know, call out Munt as like a either like I, I'm not sure if it's as a full on like defector, but like as a traitor, like he he's yeah, trying yeah. to. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, he's basically just saying like, yeah, no, like Munt is the traitor here. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. that's what his plan is. Right. So there's that. The other thing I was gonna say is. I really like these little slice of life moments that when they got political, like in the movie, like I did like when she is like, uh, when Nan is saying like, you know, she's got to go uh, for like basically a, a, a commie convention is, is basically where she said she's going. But, you know, there's a little thing where she has to ask her, her boss at the library, like, you know, she needs to, if she can take her time for holiday to do that. Uh, and it's a couple different things. You kind of get to know that, like, all right, Nan is somebody who's not hiding her political affiliations because she's like, oh yeah, but like you know, I'm, it's like you know, I'm a communist, and you know, and then the the boss is like, you know, yeah, I've never and I've never held that against you, like so, and just like those little interactions, yeah. like, and then she's like, well, I'm going to you know, you know, Berlin, it's, and then she's like, oh well, which side of the wall? And then she tells you, it's like, yeah, well, when I talk to my superior, I'm just going to say you're just going to Germany. I, we don't need to get into specifics. I, and I thought that was kind of like a little nice, like, slice of life moment of, like, you mm-hmm. know, what it's like to live in it without making such a huge meal out of it. It's just like these little moments of this is just what the uh, – because in a way – and I'm still trying to think of, like, how that actually gets paid off other than I think it just paints the world better and the, and the characters a little bit better. And I, and I, no, I, I just think- like moments like that. I think it does too because I think it's also like you have that sort of thing where it's the slice of life stuff and I think you do get some of that towards the beginning of the movie as well and I think it also pairs up well for like when you know we have these moments when Fielder is interrogating Loomis Mm -hmm. and like they go off to like they have this walk through the woods uh, and like into the mountains and they just have this conversation of just like kind of again just you know if I kill you you know if I kill you I promise to like you know make it a snappy neck you know right right like thing and if I I kill you it'll be like you know quick bomb and everything will be fine and stuff like that you know again sort of the just you know whereas uh, Nan and her boss are kind of having that civilian side of it that that Fielder and and Loomis are 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 having these conversations just about like yeah well this is what we do like you're you know we're both kind of killers and we're both kind yeah, it's of like, it's like let's move on from this we know that like you know we're if we're gonna kill each other we're gonna you know do it as efficiently as we can in our own way and that's just how it is but that's not yeah, why we're here and, and those are those especially that one in the mountains is there's some fun conversations yeah that, that are had between the two characters that again just aliven up the world and these characters enough dude there was oh. a there was a dig in this movie that i even was like when i was watching it i was like damn where he was like um you know, there there comes a point where Fielder is like, you know, kind of implying like, hey, listen, you know, we have facilities here for if you have to stay a long time and, you know, basically implying like, oh, we can get you we can get you a woman if you want. And like, you know, they're doing that. And then uh, uh, Nan comes up, you know, not by name, but like the fact that like, you know, he was seeing somebody back there. And then he basically is like the the line was something along the lines of like. Yes, she was, um, you know, a very idealistic communist uh, girl. She w- and it was all I could afford at the time. <laughs> and I was like, damn, because it, it's like you know, it's supposed to be also like his dig at like you know communists too. It's like and, it's like dig at communists and also trying to imply that like it, that she's not important so that they won't right. Her in. So it's it, it's a double thing, like you know, he trying to underplay it, but then also 
like it is funny because even though like he is a very nihilistic character, his political leanings are fairly obvious. Like, you yeah. know, he thinks that you know, communist protesters are stupid, and then he's just jaded by the current system, regardless. It's, so. Like, it, it really, like, you know, like they, there are, you know, points where both Nan and Fielder are just like, well, what do you believe in? Like, right. You got to believe in something, and you know, it's like he, his, you know, his response, you know, Loomis's response is like, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Father Christmas, you know, like you right. know, he has that line a couple times, where it's just like he, he, he doesn't see either system, the co- the capitalist or the communist system, working out because he's been in the game too long. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah, so the, those little – so I, I did like all those kind of like little moments that just seem to kind of flesh out the characters yeah. like a little bit, a, a little more. I think more. so, too. And, mm-hmm. again, I think that the, the acting as well, especially with, with um, Burton and Claire, yeah, I think they, they do quite a lot to, 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 to give those little nuances to those characters in those moments to make the world feel real and to make – you know, they, again, showcase the history – of those characters because again you do again it's seems simple but you do have nan as the young idealist mm-hmm. who is still views the world you know the the as a wide-eyed view of the world where it's like we have this possibility of doing something good with this right and you have loomis who like you know has seen enough killing and seen enough of this shit for his whole life, especially at the end of the movie when he realizes that he was just a pawn mm-hmm. in this, that he that he was just not told anything. Because the other part of it is, you know, he realizes this has been going on forever because part of his argument uh, for, you know, Munt being the traitor, that, you know, the false information is like, I was the head of these spies in Berlin. Like, if Munt was an informant, like, it would have had to go through me because I was the head of everybody. Right, like, right. You know, including Reinhardt when he was killed. Like, everybody went through me. Well, that's what I thought they were going to do. I thought they were going to try to catch him and being like, he, it actually did, and you're not good at your job. Like, I, I thought yeah. that's where they were going to go. But um, but instead the implication is, like, no, like, there was stuff that even Control always kept from him. Mm-hmm. That he was never truly, like, in the know or that important that he had to know the biggest stuff. Right. And he was just used as a pawn in in this game to to save their their more important agent. Like that was, and that's the other thing is that Munt is the higher priority than him. Mm-hmm. You know, which is again ideal. You know, it, it's supposed to be the case, but it's just like how much so that like he had to tell. You know, yeah, you know that way. Is there anything about the movie you want to talk? Because I did have a kind of like a broader point about this movie that I wanted to bring uh, up. Well, I did want to mention that we do get one uh, brief Bond actor crossover in this. Mm. Um, where there's the part of the way that he gets to jail is it, there's a shopkeeper uh, that he goes to for his food and eventually like right he, like, right. He, like mm-hmm. play on credit and eventually like beats up the shopkeeper and that puts him in jail. The shopkeeper is and that and, 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 and real quick that moment like when he's doing stuff like that that's like legit that's like him losing it because part that of, I th- that was part yeah. of the the part of the movie that I was a little unclear about like whether he is very good at this undercover thing and all that is like, you know, he's, that's a character he's playing or is this really him breaking down? Um, maybe that's kind of the point that you're like, it's blurring that line, but I I did find that. Yeah. I think the point is like, it's probably a little of both Mm -hmm. that he knows he's supposed to like get the jail because he knows that he's probably supposed to be approached by these people, Mm. but he's also probably taking his genuine frustrations and probably is drinking a bit too much. Right. But anyway, the shopkeeper is played by none other than Bernard Lee, a.k.a. the original M. Uh, so in the same year oh, that he was doing awesome. Thunderball, that, like, and again, he's very unrecognizable because he has a mustache and, like, you know, 
Uh, like he's a little bit like he's just a little bit of a different thing. But M, the original M, Bernard Lee, while he was still doing Thunderball and all that sort of stuff, was was in this movie. So right. I thought that was really fun. Oh, okay, that's that, that is cool. That's awesome. I'm trying to think if there was anything else movie wise worth mentioning. Um, I mean, obviously, we the quote, the speech is like probably the most famous part of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 it really does distill the themes very, very well. Oh, yeah, it's the um, this is the point of the movie speech, definitely. Right, but I mean, it's also that is very much again, as we mentioned, like a direct. It's a direct not not attack, I guess, but it's it's a direct antithesis of Bond. Or is this like, what do you think spies are? Like that, that immediately shows you, well, it's not Bond, it's this. Right. Like this is what spies are. And it's, it's again, it's, it, that is like Lake Curry just basically being like, well, this is what the Bond novels and the Bond movies do. And that's, this is not what it is. I've been to Berlin, I've been there, and it's shit. Right. So I think that's worth, obviously worth mentioning right. as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of uh, hops into what I think is um, – a kind of an interesting conversation and probably, you know, a well-worn path at this point, but I'll talk about it anyway, about, um, you know, the place for, you know, a movie like this, you know, whether it's part of a franchise or, um, you know, tangent, uh, tangentially uh, connected to a franchise. It's just being the movie that basically is taking like the stance of like, okay, you know, your flight's a fancy or, fine and all but now we're going to show you what it really is like and you know I, i'm often fascinated by I, I don't have a problem with that I, i'm usually very uh, i don't want to say skeptical but just very hesitant to I, i'm always suspicious of a person of, of of a creator who kind of hops into the material with that as their goal like in in a weird way because I'm always like finding it like yeah, but I don't know if those movies are are like necessarily saying that like right. when you watch Bond, like isn't it implied that you understand that it's like a fanciful version of like spies? You know what I mean? Like it's like yes, it, 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 it's funny because like. There are lots of stuff where it's like this movie gets real and political and like really showing like these nuances of the world as like a way to kind of like remind and take back like what spies actually are. But I guess my brain always goes to it's like, yeah, but like I don't think Bond is like saying like this is what spies are. It's just kind of like like a again of like a fanciful, arguably power fantasy type of version of, you know of a profession i suppose i don't know does that does that kind of make no, sense No, i think it makes sense but I, I also it's a very basic kind of like stance I, I understand that but yeah i i i i think it's one of those things where i do think that there's certain i think there's a yes and no element to it whereas i think that yes i think there is an implication that you know the 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 larger you know crazier stuff of Bond that I think people understand, like the the world-dominating plots and the gadgets and stuff. Right, right. But I do think that there is an element of, like, stuff like Bond, you know, especially because it is, you know, as opposed to, like, superhero movies, it's kind of still rooted somewhat in reality. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that superheroes, I'm, I'm, you know what I'm saying. It's like there's kind of a realness to, especially, like, Dr. No and, and From Rush With Love and stuff like that. Right. I do think that there is an element of that sometimes that there is kind of 
that thought of like a spy life is kind of you, know, you get to travel the world and and like there's a glamour to it, I guess. Um, that I think that you know can be associated with the spy uh, in some regard. Um, but I do I do get what you're saying, and I do kind of agree mostly with it. Is that we you know. But I, 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 it's hard to kind of always tell. I think sometimes, especially with a wider audience. Well, maybe maybe this is kind of maybe we're we're just kind of getting into our personal stances on this. But let me ask you this: like, do do you do you really think that it's like entertainment's responsibility to balance out Bond with a serious spy movie? No, it's not. It's not the responsibility of like a studio to do that or, or movies to do that. Right. Uh, it's just every individual creator is going to do what they are attached to and, and what they feel. Sure, sure. And I, I think, mean, and that's why but, I'm... But I, yeah, mm-hmm, but, go ahead. But I think there's also a difference between a movie like this where, yes, there's kind of... The behind the scenes is that, yes, it's a response to Bond and stuff like that. But the movie never... Like, it's not like, you know, the movie really puts it in your face and like, oh, this is like not Bond or, you know what I mean? As opposed to like, if you go to like modern like superhero stuff, where I feel like sometimes that kind of grittier stuff, you know, like stuff like the boys will be like, it's in your face, like, well, this isn't the MCU, you know? What right, I mean? right. <laughs> but I feel like I feel like a movie like this and like those other, because I feel like this still again has its place in that subsection of like I mentioned, like stuff that devolves into the Manchurian Candidate and and Three Days of the Condor and Parallax View, where it's like, yes, like maybe not like the broad British spy stuff, but stuff where it's like the spies and the behind the scenes and the par- and the paranoia and and the you know double crossings all that sort of like there's definitely a part of that that fits and i think that especially with a movie like this and in, in, in its time period i think it definitely works but i definitely think you can have your serious spy movie right and your bond but i think both need to stand on its own like this stands on its own from bond but also can work as a response to bond i think yeah i think i would have had more of an issue with this movie if it were more of a direct Bond parallel, like where yes. it was like, all right, this is Bond, but everywhere where it would have been fanciful, we're going to play it serious. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think like this movie is really just its own thing. Like there, there are some Bond-esque things in the margins, but it's not, other, otherwise it's like completely unrelated to a Bond movie. And which is why I think I liked it. I think if it was trying to be a little bit more deconstructionist than that, I would I would have had a problem um, I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have, but I, I, I just know sometimes I, I, I do get this sense of like when people say like, okay, we're we're going to do this real dark, unglamorous version of uh, let, let's say one of the reasons, and I've kind of lightened up on this stance on on uh, like Logan, for instance. Whereas I think my initial reaction to it was like it, it definitely just had on its face this. Like okay, this is what it would really be like. We're, and, we're the R-rated, right? Serious right. Uh, movie, yeah. Same thing with like Joker, where it was like, yeah, but that's not why I'd like this stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like yeah. it's not like I no, I understand that it's not this, and I and so in, in a way, I, I don't mind like they do it, but it's just yeah. I, I I kind of often reject the the conceit of why something like a work like this like means something if that makes yeah. sense i that may sound harsh but no no i get it i get it and, I, and again i think it's I, I think it's definitely more of an issue now with with in in postmodern times i guess you would right. say mm-hmm. i think i because i think there is more especially with more interviews and more like stuff like that like you know and then 
and the fandoms are all different and stuff like that as well. Whereas I think that there's a more push for like when you have a Logan or a Joker that there you, you just get more of the implication that like this is supposed to be cinema, right? You know? mm-hmm. Well, you know, like- but, but but here's another bigger kind of gripe I have about it too. It's this notion that like I get it, like you know, there's a there's a little bit. I think it's an overplayed argument, but there's a little bit where like a lot of people just feel like you know movies, especially now that there's like mainstream franchises are just like too fanciful but at the same time you can't argue with me that that the movie industry doesn't have a history of glamorizing not glamorous things oh 100% like like how like you can talk to me about like how like oh maybe it was like a better time when it was like let's say like the western genre was a thing because you could tell like you know maybe like darker grittier real stories but at the same time you're still glamorizing a time that was not great you know what i mean no, like I at mean, the end we, of the end result is like everybody just like thinks like cowboys were great and there were no issues with them like pirates are great and there's no issue like gangsters are awesome and even though the text, yes, if you really what? read the text, these guys are bad guys, but the result of it was everybody thought that they were awesome. So it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, yeah, I mean, we uh, the, you, there could be a whole discussion on how our modern view of the Wild West is very influenced by those, like, 30s, 40s, 50s Westerns. Sure, 100%. Like, even, and again, it's like, like it's like cool. Search, it's like cool the, to be a cowboy. Like, <laughs> well, the searcher, like the you know, the, one of the most famous, the searchers is the great example where that whole movie is supposed to be like, well, John Wayne's character is kind of crazy and a dick, mm-hmm. but we still, we still, no, John him. Wayne is the hero that yeah. was going to search for the girl. Like, no, right. it's like again, but we, we, I think that's always been the thing about cinema, and, and especially like you know this era of cinema, mm-hmm. uh, like the 50s, 60s, 70s, is that there is that sense of like. Yes, the text and what people take are two very different things. Sure, sure, but it, it even, is it, 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 honestly like even this movie and this book had somewhat of that, where you know that some people viewed the Loomis character as like a you know it read the Loomis character as like a tragic hero who was just you know sped up by the system, whereas others would say that like no, it's very much just about this how the system will just wear you down and 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 you know make you someone who right is just like is just kind of you know. Like, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the word, um, dejected and, and, and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, just kind of like, like looks lowly at the world because right. that's what it is. So, yeah, he, uh, uh and, and I think that that was, I think one of the reasons why making the movie as political as it was, was a smart move because it made it more grounded as its own kind of work as opposed to an answer to spy films like yes even though you could read that in, that into there and it is in in the it's subtextually it's in there and especially if you know the spy genre but mm-hmm. I, I felt like the movie wasn't explicit explicitly that if that makes sense i i felt yes. like it was more of just kind of like all right this is more of a commentary on the real world and how do spies fit in the real world as opposed to, I think, what happens with movies now that want to be deconstructionist, it's like, all right, let's take, like, l- let's take the superhero genre and we're going to make a real, like, dark version of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and that, that, to me, I think is the difference, and that's why a movie like that, like, you know, why I kind of, you know, for instance, like, Logan works sometimes and it doesn't work for me other times, whereas a movie like this, I think, kind of, like, works throughout. 
Yeah, and again, I think it really is about standing on its own and, and being its own story and its own look into the world of spies, yeah. which I think is the most important thing. Because again, I think even with like, like if you go to superhero stuff or even if you go to other sort of the deconstructionist stuff that we have, it, it a lot of it kind of tends to be like, it really is in your face about, well, this previous stuff was nonsense because this is the real thing. Yeah, you can just tell like, okay, this is like, like this thing, like, okay, that guy actually died. Like, you know, yeah. like, you know, like, and sometimes yeah. in Subaru movies, they don't die. Like, it's like, okay, I get it. Like, yeah, but, but again, yeah. I think The Spy Who Came In From The Cold does a great job of, of, of being like a, a great movie on its own terms. Uh, that is really anchored by the performances yeah. and sort of the 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 character exploration that we get uh, throughout the film. But after all that, the most important question is who is Harrison Ford in this movie? Uh, that's a hard one. Yeah, I, I think I think he's you know I think again because you know when we get to this era, this is kind of like young Harrison Ford. This is you know Carpenter just starting out acting Harrison Ford type of era. So I feel like he is kind of a young gung, maybe in like the CIA or something. Right? You know? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. like you know that, that he like he's one of the people that like like he would be at Checkpoint Charlie, and he's one of the people that you know because that would be like Bert, like Loomis, like come on, like we'll we'll finish this, like you know. There's a moment in the movie where Control basically is like laying out what like the status of the world is, and there's like a line where he's like, "Yeah, well, it's kind of clear that like the like the states aren't going to be our enemy." At this yeah. point, like it's like it's just kind of clear. Like it's like okay, like you know they're not going to be a problem. So I'm I'm imagining like maybe he just got finished a meeting with like a state like the American representative, and that could be Harrison Ford or something. Yeah, in a that very works in a very uh, apocalypse now sized uh, cameo. Yes, um, yes, that indeed. that would be it. Um, cool. Yeah, like I said, I I, I definitely uh, enjoy the movie. It's on Amazon Prime uh, for those yeah. of you who have that. So I would recommend. I would definitely recommend this as, as a watch. Yeah. And again, just for the performance of Burton uh, is enough to watch. Uh, and speaking of, just a quick uh, wrap-up of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie was uh, successful uh, at the box office, making uh, $7 million, which was you know successful uh, at that time, uh, and was very well-reviewed. Uh, many saw it as, um, again, just uh, like Variety, for example, said it was an excellent contemporary espionage drama of the Cold War, which achieves solid impact via emphasis on human values, total absence of mechanical spy gimmickry, and perfectly controlled underplaying. So again, like the, the critics definitely saw, you know, as this a response to Bond, especially because, again, the same year, 1965, mm-hmm. it's the height of the franchise. Oh, it's yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's the biggest of that original run. Um, but there is still, again, just again, the, as an, a book adaptation and, and a notable book adaptation, people thought it was. And again, the, the, the performance of Richard Burton as Alec Loomis uh, was lauded across the board, again, being nominated for Best Actor, uh, losing to Lee Marvin uh, for his dual role in Cat Blue, starring Jane Fonda. <laughs> I'm, I, um, I am familiar with that movie. Um, but uh, and this has gone down as one of the uh, basically a kind of a classic of this type of cinema of this type of film, uh, and still regarded as one of the, one of the best sort of early spy thrillers, um, especially um, for you know kind of this the era of still kind of black and white which this movie is in. Which by the way, always a good reminder of just really great black and white cinematography. Like you just it's a kind of an underrated. You know, people are like, "Ah, oh, I can't watch black and white movies," but like, there, there's definitely an art to making black and white movies look great, and this mm-hmm. is one of them. Yeah, I think there's some really good just shots that really use the the color palette very effectively. 
Definitely. Um, all right. Is that it? That is it. Are we good? to tell you to what we're what is next time. Oh, right. On. For for Bond. For Bond, uh it oh, is yes. finally Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's finally time to get one of the most requested episodes in. Uh, I have had numerous people ask me to do this next movie. And as we approach the end of 2020, as we approach the end of this original era of the Bonzilla podcast, I think it's finally time to get there. We're going to be looking at Spy Kids next month. And I'm very excited to talk about Spy Kids. I'm excited, too. Um, and as we head uh, in, because next time's not going to be a Bond episode, it's going to be a Godzilla yeah. episode, and uh, I have yet to announce it uh, because we are heading into the Halloween season, so I'm um, really looking into what is the best option for that. I have a few yes. uh, contenders, and uh, people will know this month when we do it. <laughs> yes, and so. uh, also I, I do want to say right now for those of you that are wondering – uh, we will have an announcement on the future of the podcast in November. Uh, so we are still kind of working out a few of the details on that, um, but we will let you know it's sometime in November what is coming next on the Bondzilla podcast in terms of our post-Bond and Godzilla plans. And of course, you can still expect that even with No Time to Die being delayed, uh, we will definitely look at that when it comes out, we will still be looking at Kong versus Godzilla versus comes out. And I'm sure that when this anime series happens, we will also have a little bit about that too. So again, don't worry. We still will have bond and Godzilla stuff on the way come the future, but uh, we will have an announcement in November about what lies next for us. Cool. All right. Well, um, until then I'm done. You're done. We're all done. All Plug right, away. Bonzillapod at gmail.com, twitter.com slash bonzilla007, facebook.com slash bonzilla007, like and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. Tell your friends, you know, again, we have the whole Bond and Godzilla canon up there now, so if you just want to run through it, tell your friends, hey, just watch all the Bond movies and listen along with us, or watch all the Godzilla movies and listen along with us, or watch uh, Austin Powers and listen along with us if you want. All right, well... Till then, take care, everybody. Peace, guys. Next time, we'll see you.